What's good, everyone? Chris is starting show here. And before we get into today's episode, I just have a couple announcements I want to make. The first one is I have started my own YouTube channel where I'm here to help people save, grow, and protect their money. So make sure you subscribe to my channel. And also here on the Roommates platform, I am interviewing people around finances. So I have people coming with real estate about how to pay down debt, how to invest, all those different things. So I want you all to do to make sure you get your pen and your paper out and take notes because the information that is provided during these podcast episodes are so valuable. And with that being said, let's get started with today's episode. There, there basically there was two monsters that I was fighting against, right? The fear and the doubt or the, the need to survive. Yeah. Right. And so my need to survive was greater than my doubt, mm. you know, so I didn't have any options. And that's, what a lot of business owners, they don't become business owners in some sexy, fantastic way where they write this business plan and everybody's like clapping when they read the business yeah, yeah, plan. Yeah, like, yeah. oh, you're going to be such a great business owner. Here's some funding. Like, let me give, write you a check. And, and it's all glorious and nothing wrong ever happens. That's not how business works. It's clumsy. Yo, what's good, roommates, family? Chris, the star of the show, back with you for another video. Listen, I am super, super excited for today's podcast episode. Like I said in the intro, make sure you have your pen and your paper because this guest today is a legend. You know, I, somebody I've been watching his content. He's very knowledgeable. He's very smart. He's very educated. And someone I say I look up to. So the roommates, family, can you please welcome in Sean? Rag, ah, I can't face <laughs> No, it's all right. You don't have to get it. How do you say it? Rocky Jeech. Rocky Jeech. Sean Rocky Jeech, right? Yep, yep. Beautiful, beautiful. So, Sean, can you please introduce yourself to my audience and uh, what you do for a living? What's up, roommates? Uh, <laughs> name's Sean. Uh, YouTube channel's Airbnb Automated, but that's going to change. Airbnb asked me to stop using Airbnb in the title. <laughs> so, my YouTube channel is probably Sean Rocky Jeech by now or Sean T. Rocky Jeech, something of the sort. Okay. Um, I do Airbnb and I teach it, uh, but that's like my fifth or sixth business. So I try to take more of a general business approach to the fact that I do Airbnb and teach it. Uh, but that's my niche. Beautiful, beautiful. So mm -hmm. how did you get started in the Airbnb space? Like, like what, what position in life were you in? What age were you? And then why did you start, started to get into the Airbnb space? All right. So the origin story, one yes. man, yes. Houston, Texas. <laughs> um, so I was in Houston at the time. Shout out to Houston. Are yep. you from Houston? Clutch City. No, I grew up in Wisconsin. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So I killed the accent, as you yes. can tell. That's <laughs> that's not here, but I can bring it out if I need to. So I grew up in Wisconsin, but got into sales in Wisconsin, dropped out of music school for a wow. sales job. And I was selling newspaper subscriptions at grocery stores. And I'm sure people have seen these guys around still. You walk into a Kroger or an H-E-B or a Safeway, and some dude's like, hey, free newspaper or some, something like that. Yeah. And then we would try to sell people like subscriptions to the newspaper. Like we'd collect like a credit card for like 20 bucks and put people on like a monthly membership. Wow. So I ended up starting my own company that did that um, in about 2010. I was homeless in 2009. That's a separate story. Mm. But after homelessness was when I finally had like the brass to start my first business. Got you. And so that grew through 2013, 14, where I was so big that I was recruiting salespeople from around the country. And as part of my recruitment package, I would give them free housing. So wow. I'd give them like eight weeks of free rent in a furnished apartment because salespeople are like, you as a sales manager, you start to understand that salespeople are the best when they only focus on the kill, right? Back. The sale. So housing's covered, lifestyle's covered, yeah. everything you want, you're, you're, you're king, just make tons and tons of commissions, right? 
So like free housing was an easy way to get people in. They just show up and they start selling and it worked. Yeah. Um, but there was a, like there was a, like summer of 2014, a bunch of people end up moving out, either to different cities, moving home, something like that. And I had these empty apartments at this one building mm. in Houston. And I was like, oops, I didn't plan for that. Of course, I'm like just not thinking ahead. So I signed year-long leases just to give people two or three months of housing. So I had all these <laughs> year-long leases that were furnished. So after a few months of losing money on them, wow. um, trying to find like real old-school corporate housing, like executives to stay there, and I was failing hard, somebody mentioned that they stayed at an Airbnb in Austin, Texas. Mm. And I'm like, oh, I'll put these on Airbnb. Mm. So like October 2014 was my first Airbnb guest in those apartments. And then they were instantly profitable. Wow. Um, like our, my, my cost for the business was like all the rents for all three apartments were like 6,000, 6,200 okay. a month. And then we were making about 12,500 a month off wow. of a few apartments. So I was profiting like six grand a month off of these three. And that's how it started. But I didn't actually like to decide that that was good enough because I was still running my other company. And I was like, this newspaper thing's going to be huge. <laughs> Wasn't huge. Um, <laughs> but it was still my main thing. So I just did Airbnb kind of like on the side. It was wow. like a side hustle for about two years until the Super Bowl came. 2017 in Houston was when I was like, this is a business. We're going to yeah. crank, crank that was it. Yeah, that was a crazy Super Bowl. That was the Tom Brady Fal in the, uh, yeah, the Falcons, Falcons game. game Super Bowl. Wow. Wow. So when you yeah, we, the Falcons were up like twenty one points in the first quarter, something like that, right? Yes. They it yeah. was a legendary comeback. Yeah, that that was that game. Yeah. Um well, so I have a lot of questions. So you actually kind of like not really accidentally got started in the Airbnb space. So when you realized after that Super Bowl that it was a business, what what shifted your mindset where it's okay, I want to expand, I want to, you know, really learn the platform and really just scale this out to where you are today. And actually, how many doors do you say you you run today? About 120. About 120. Yeah. Wow. So I'm pretty pretty much fully automated. I only step in to shoot content. Yeah. So uh, a woman named Haley runs the business. A guy named Jason runs the real estate side, like door acquisition. So wow. they've been growing. Uh, we've just picked up five doors in Philadelphia and 11 doors in Austin just now. And wow. we've got a deal here in Dallas that's delayed, but it was going to be like 10. Like so, we just kind of like pick up doors. Mm -hmm. uh, so we're about 120 right now. Okay. Um, and. I decided that this had legs right before the Super Bowl because I heard people were going to charge $1,000 a night for their little apartments. I'm That's like, true. They're going to charge what? Right? <laughs> so I went from having three or four doors to having 10. Like November of 2016 to February 2000 to, to the Super Bowl, I went from four to 10, scaled up to 10 and made like $15,000 profit that weekend. Wow. And I was like, this is sick. Um, so I already had 10 doors though. I did the 10 doors just for that weekend. But wow. now, of course, you're holding them. So now I have a business of 10 doors. And so now it became more of a real thing because I was now starting to scale. But in a way, I was just scaling circumstantially until that point because I was still always focused on that other business that was, you know, paying all my bills anyway. Makes sense. Makes sense. Yeah. So, like, I want people to make sure they understand. So it's like you're not purchasing these properties. You're doing what exactly? So I'm leasing them. Yeah. Yes. Um, that is a distinction. My best friend buys them. A lot of people I know buy houses and then they put them on Airbnb. But... Um, I will rent from a landlord and the nature of this is changing too. So that's also a long story, but yeah. long story short, a lease says that you can't sublet, can't Airbnb. You can tell a landlord, Hey, I'll rent from you, but we're going to change this section of the lease. If we're gain, let's go. Mm. And that's where a lot of people don't get into Airbnb. They're like, subletting is illegal. Airbnb is illegal. And they think that a contract means illegal. It's this really weird misnomer that the community has. Mm. A contract is subject to negotiation. 
doing something that's against a contract is actually like a civil violation between you and whoever you wrote the contract with. That's not illegal. It's just like against the rule. It's like really shitty if you did that without their permission. Yeah. But just as easily, you can go to a landlord and say, hey, I know you're hard up for a tenant right now. I'll be your tenant for a long time. Just let's change a piece of this lease. Mm. And that's what I've essentially done since 2014 is find leases that either don't disallow Airbnb or convince the landlord to change that piece. And how do you, uh, like, what is the offer for the landlord for them to allow you to do Airbnb in that space? So that's probably the heart of the, the whole debate, right? Mm -hmm. Landlords might, I don't know, the debate online is people like, why would a landlord ever let somebody Airbnb their house, right? Something like that. Mm -hmm. Well, if you look at a landlord's world, and you've, done, you've talked to a lot of real estate investors probably, yeah, 100%. right? And you're like, what's the hardest part about being a landlord? Some people be like collecting rents or... Yeah tenants being like entitled to like bugging me in the middle of the night over bullshit. Right. Yeah. I'm um, part of my French, but, okay. um, but landlords have problems, whether tenants don't pay, they complain about everything. They destroy a house and then move out. And then the repair costs are intense. And then the reletting cost of a, of a disaster house, like how many months does it take to get back on the market and then get a tenant mm. paying real estate agents a commission to find you a tenant? Like landlords have problems, yeah. right? So when you come up to a landlord and say, Hey, all that's going to go away. I'll sign this lease from you, two year, three year long lease maybe even if you're game. And because I'll be profiting on this door, I'm never gonna want to let it go. This mm -hmm. is gonna cash flow for me too. So I'll wanna keep it as long as you own it, yeah. right? You're gonna cash flow, I'm gonna cash flow and I will never leave if I'm cash flowing. Yeah. Plus now that I'm making money on your property, I wanna be your friend. So I'm not gonna call you in the middle of the night with an attitude because exactly. I don't want you mad at me, I want that lease renewal. So the whole nature changes. And we're also cleaning the properties regularly, all these other, there's a whole ton of like pitch points um, that I teach obviously online. Yeah. Um, and all of those are really targeting landlords key pains with dealing with regular tenants because dealing with regular tenants is not as cool as yeah. people think it is. It's no. not passive like everybody thinks it is. Yeah. So I think that's, that's clever because you're taking on, I guess the, the role that the landlord really, you know, don't want like you Peace of mind, basically. They yeah. only deal with you. You know, you are keeping the place upkept with cleaning, you know, mm -hmm. things like that. So for like those who, let's just say they're watching. Like, I know you got started in a kind of like in a in a different way. But if you had to go back and you want to like start over, like in what direction? Let's just say it was a, a guy who's about to graduate college in May, right? Mm -hmm. He wants to uh, he wants to get in the Airbnb business. He wants to lease. He wants to do, you know, rental arbitrage. How should he go about doing that? I'd still do it nearly the same way I did, except he, the other person's not already a business owner that already has the same type of lease. But when I got started, I had an LLC that signed a lease. Okay. Right? And then I changed out the occupant, right? When my Airbnb guest changed, whoever was on that lease, whoever wrote along on the lease changed. Mm. So a corporate lease or a, a lease that's signed by a corporation can change out its occupants because gotcha. the company the company's not a human being. It can't sleep on the pillow, right? So there will always be a person as the resident occupant on a lease under an LLC. Gotcha. Right? So, that so you form the LLC first and mm -hmm. then you put the LLC under the lease and then that business allows you to rotate people. Yeah, with, okay. that's what makes it more clean. Now, gotcha. some people still stop there. They think that that's enough. There's been a lot of like, like, half gurus and the, like there's about a hundred or so people teaching how to Airbnb and they don't understand lease law. Mm. Right. And fortunately I've paid a lot of attorneys for a lot of other things. And I've had this conversation with my attorneys on their dollar, right. Or on their billable hourly, whatever I pay mm -hmm. them. Right. And the, the corporate lease side 
just long story short, it doesn't end there. You still need permissions for the other parts of the lease, right? Okay. Like permission to put it on Airbnb or permission to collect money for someone to stay there. There are going to be other parts of the lease that need to get negotiated away. So if we're going to take a, like a 17 year old kid that's about to turn 18, he can start a lease right now. Even when he's 17 or 16, you can start a, you could start an LLC now. Yes. You can, you can go online to the secretary of state website here in Texas or in any other state, form a business. You just need a registered agent that is over the age of 18. Mm. So you could actually go and buy a Nevada LLC at 16, because wow. if you're going to go through a computer to buy one from Texas into Nevada, you will have a, a company like a, a law firm will set up your LLC for you and be your registered agent. But they're all over 18. So you at 16 can go reach through and buy a Nevada corporation right now for 500 bucks. And by the time you're 18, your business is a year or two old. Wow. And in order to get approved for a lease, your LLC tends to need to be a little bit older. You can then set up a business bank account at the age of 16 for the LLC, get an EIN number, Dun & Bradstreet number. You can do all of the bed making. Mm. And then by the time you're ready, I mean, you could arguably even pick up your first lease before you're 18, mm. right? If you wanted to. Yeah. Because that business exists, they're going to run the LLC's credit, the risk on the LLC. The fact that you're 17 now doesn't actually even matter. Facts. So. I would love to see a 17 year old get into the Airbnb space by buying an LLC at the age of 16 or 17 in Nevada, use a registered agent over the age of 18, do everything that's necessary, then have that LLC apply to a, a, an apartment. Mm -hmm. The only, I think the only change now is that because so many people know about Airbnb and arbitrage and all of the, like the lingo in the game, you can't go to a luxury high rise in downtown Dallas now without any clout and go, Hey, I'd like to rent a couple properties and do short-term rentals. Mm -hmm. They're like, we get calls every week from some of the biggest companies in the, in the game. They want our property. Yeah. So now you're probably gonna have to stick to single family homeowners or like B class properties. Like and what do you mean by B class properties? Um, so imagine an apartment complex. that's maybe two stories tall. Okay. Maybe three stories tall. There's ones that are called garden style. They, they're built on large plots of land. Like maybe they're built on four, five, 10 acres. And there's like 30 little buildings. Okay. And all of those buildings are like, say, 16 units or 12 units. Mm -hmm. But there's a bunch of like roads in between them and a bunch of little parking spaces. That's called a garden style property where there's like a bunch of distributed like 12 units. Okay. Um, those are some of my favorite because they're cheap. They have three bedroom apartments, which make tons of money. Wow. And they're normally owned by smaller investment groups, not like the ego driven gray stars or, or Lincoln property, all of your like or Goldman Sachs, like not all those like really pristine names. You're going to need a lot more local names that own those and they'll play ball more frequently. Wow. Yeah. No, that's, I think that's beautiful. So like with the, how can someone, let's just say they want to go up to someone that has a single family home. You know, so they have to go up, introduce themselves to the landlord, say mm -hmm. that, you know, I have this business. I want to put it on Airbnb. Here's all the things I would do. Mm -hmm. So if they get to that part and they did all of that, they got the lease, they got the contract, they're good. What makes a good Airbnb that's going to consistently get booked? That changes per market, mm -hmm. right? It there does depend. Go. So yeah. let's say you are by Deep Ellum, Dallas. Okay. Right. So Deep Elm has a couple types of consumers that'll come into town. Um, Deep Elm has like music shows and stuff. You got Southside Ballroom, Bomb Factory, little spots. You got the bar scene, so people come in for the weekends. But you also have Baylor there, right? Mm -hmm. So you're also possibly able to pull on medical professionals. But you're also really close to Highway 75. You could shoot up to SMU. You could shoot down into downtown. So let's say you're like Brian's Place area, just north of Deep Elm, not quite lower Greenville, but you're like in that pocket. Mm -hmm. If you had a three or four bedroom house that you were arbitraging, if you furnished it just well enough, right? You had a generic kind of- and Give me a ballpark 
number of how much you how much furniture would cost. Just ballpark. Uh ten thousand dollars to furnish a three bedroom. Three bedroom. And Probably what about next. what about a studio apartment? Forty five hundred. Two bedroom apartment. Eighty five hundred. I love how you just know the number. <laughs> yeah, I just want to keep going. Yeah. So the, I've got a rule of thumb, which is a one bedroom is about 5000 okay. And then it's about $2,000 per bedroom after that, depending on square footage. There you go. But two bedroom apartment, it's probably closer to say 7500 but a two bedroom house is more like 8500 Okay. Um, a three bedroom house will be about 10000 but a three bedroom apartment, you probably get done for just over nine because it's less square footage. Facts. Right. So square footage, really, because you need to fill the space up, right? You have, maybe have to do some painting, extra decor. But so yeah, you got that ten thousand dollars in furnishings for a three bedroom house um, in the Brian's Place area, and your other startup costs. You might have to give first month's rent, last month's rent, security deposit. So you might actually be out as much as eighteen thousand on that deal, okay? Unless you negotiate with the landlord, which is one of my favorite things to do. Is I, I tell the landlord we don't pay last month's rent, we don't pay a full month security deposit, mm. and we want the two first two months of rent for free. How like, did you? How did you pull that? That out? is a secret. Um, so <laughs> I love it. Well, I got students who do it. Yeah. Like, but one well, actually, there's one that he's pitching a deal right now, and I, I'm talking to him on the phone, and the landlord wants an extra hundred fifty dollars a month because he's going to mm. do Airbnb. I'm like, no, no, no. That's this exactly what you tell him. Like, on the contrary, we're going to pay less, and these are these are the reasons why. And he's like, "Are you really telling me we can get free rent?" I'm like, "Yeah, my 11 units in Austin, we got 10 weeks of rent for free. The five units in Philadelphia, we got 10 weeks of rent for free. Mm. It's part of the process." And there's a there's a, it's a sales cycle, right? You got to get the landlord on board first with your business model, mm -hmm. and then you can start to introduce extra parts of the deal that'll compel them to give you free rent. Mm. But you got to get them like to talk with you about short term rentals first. Yeah. So, but anyway, if you do it smart and you have a good sales system, you can get into that property for maybe $12,000. But if you're going to pay full boat to the landlord because you didn't do any selling, 18000 in. Okay. Now that property can be generically furnished. I guess let's circle back to like who is going to stay and like how do you compete? In this case, that $18,000 in for this three bedroom, if you generically furnish it, medical professionals will stay because it's just well furnished. Um, people who are coming for the weekend will stay. You know, there's not, the place doesn't have to have a theme or anything special. Hmm. It just has to have generically good design. Now, the medical professionals might stay for multiple weeks. So to get medical professionals to want to live there, you'll need to focus on making sure that the kitchen is fully stocked with everything you would ever need to cook, right? Yeah. And it needs a washer and dryer in the place because they're going to stay and they're going to be doing their own laundry. Mm -hmm. The group that came in for the weekend for the show, they could care less about the kitchen or the laundry because they're going to eat out. They're, they're going to be, be gone. They're going to be drunk and they're not going to do their laundry until they get home, mm -hmm. right? So the types of things. And so for that group, you might want a hot tub in the backyard, right? The, the nurses might think, oh, this is super cool that we got a hot tub, but they're not going to really use it that much. They're going to be working 12-hour shifts and yeah. just cooking at home, and they're not going to have time for recreation. So business travel, if, you, if you're appealing to business travel, you're going to have different amenities than if you're appealing to leisure travel. And so that's why it depends, because where you pop up a property, will what, what you put in that property is based on what customer base travels to that area. You can't yeah. put up an Airbnb and bring leisure travel to an area, you know, argue that I'll make the argument that you just can't snap your fingers and all of a sudden you have tourism because you put up one Airbnb, Facts. right? Yeah. I'm not coming to Wyoming. Like, yeah, exactly. I mean, exactly. like <laughs> one Airbnb property and all of a sudden we got a Disneyland. It's yeah, not going to happen. Nah. Right. So you need to know who's traveling to that pocket and different group sizes travel for different reasons too. So if I'm going to soapbox this in deep Elm just now, you can ask yourself, well, for the traveling nurses, what size group is that one? maybe two traveling nurses that are going to roommate up, right? So yeah. a studio apartment that has a full kitchen and washer and dryer 
can get some really good multi-week monthly rentals from the traveling nurse group that is going to be by Baylor, right? Yeah. But the deep LM like music scene, the weekend scene, you might have groups of six, eight, 12 people that want the hot tub and stuff like that. So if you're really appealing to the weekend community in deep LM, you do a four bedroom house. If you're appealing to the medical travel community in deep LM, you do a studio. Wow. Right. So one same neighborhood, yeah. but different property is for a different type of traveler, thus a different strategy. Yo, what's good, everybody? We're going to take a quick pause from this week's amazing episode to talk to you guys about our amazing sponsors over at Skillshare. Guys, Skillshare is a real A1 day one from the roommates, and we absolutely love Skillshare because they are a unique online learning community where men and women can learn all types of creative and entrepreneurial skills. Man, so many men for the past years in the roommates have been learning, have been blossoming, have been transforming from Skillshare because not only do you get the first month free to test it out, but Skillshare has such a vast library of courses, of resources that you guys can be able to tap into today. Go to Skillshare.com slash roommates and take advantage of this opportunity. Guys, on the podcast, we meet so many amazing men and women who are so talented, but they didn't get their skills overnight. They had to master these things and Skillshare gives Gives you all the resources that you can be able to master your best self and tap into your full potential. So do not delay. Get on Skillshare today. Go to Skillshare.com slash roommates. Trust me. You'll thank us later. And let's get back to this week's episode. Yes. Makes perfect sense. Yeah. And with the outlook that's, that's out in Airbnb right now, it looks like in certain areas, and I'm sure you know this, that it seems like it's oversaturated. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's like, let's just say somebody that wants to start in a Dallas or a Houston or a, a major city like a Philly or whatever. Like, if this is their first one, should they do it in their backyard or should they go to where the competition is not so good? Where it's, you know, like, you know, if there is competition, at least you can design it where you can be, have a competitive advantage. What should that first person do? Well, so people should start in their backyard because there's multiple other risks at play like mm -hmm. you don't know what's going to go wrong so if you pick up a property that's more than four hours from home that you can't scramble to get there and something goes wrong it might cause you to lose multiple days worth of reservations your calendar could get blocked by airbnb you mm. could get your seo like throttled stuff like that um and seo in this case is ranking like how visible your listing is could get throttled down by airbnb they'll punish you for like having bad stuff happen wow and if you're not there to fix it like one little thing can become a big problem but if if like the place that you're doing your short-term rental is just down the street and something goes wrong with a guest, you can show up in five minutes if you had to, right? Mm -hmm. So because your first one, you're meant to learn, it's school of hard knocks and you don't want, you don't want to get out of business while learning. So I would go local anyway. And I'll make an argument that even in Houston, which seems to be like one of the worst bets based on the data. And for those of you who don't know yet, um, you can track using, like I use All The Rooms is a website that I use. And okay. I even have a marketing agreement with them. Now I reached out to them. I like, you guys are cool. Let's do cool. some business. Um, so they gave me what they call God Mode. I can look at every city, all the data, every Airbnb in the world. Wow, you have a lot of power. That yeah, is God pretty Mode. pretty cool. Yeah, that's definitely that. the definition of God yeah, Mode. Yeah, it's super tight. And so I can look at all the cities uh, in the country and like take a look at some general, general, general data. And obviously since I do business in Houston, you know, I, I pulled it up for an example. And what I found was, that the Airbnb market has more listings now than before COVID. Wow. And it's the only city I've seen like that. In Houston. It, well, Houston wow. is the only city in the country that, that I've found so far by going, like I've looked at a, like a dozen, maybe more than a dozen cities looking at this specific data where they have more listings than pre-COVID. Mm. 
Austin, they have about 50 something percent of the listings since pre-COVID, right? COVID, there's like 7,000 listings and now they're the 3,500 listings yeah. or something like that. And revenues in Austin are up 400% though, Sheesh. right? So Austin's hot. Yeah. Um, St. Louis is pretty hot. Um, like places like uh, Birmingham, Alabama. I sent a student to Birmingham. He's like, where should I go? I'll go anywhere. I'm gonna go to Birmingham. And he just popped up 20 doors out of nowhere. Wow. Landlords never saw him coming. He's like, yeah. they're like, what are you gonna do? This sounds cool, yeah. right? Where in Dallas, you're like, I can't find a landlord to say yes. Go to the Midwest, really. Yeah. If you really want to do this, go to the Midwest because the margins are higher and landlords don't know what the, what the stick is. But Houston, even though they have more listings than prior, like it's the most saturated compared to prior to COVID markers mm -hmm. and revenues aren't up like pre-COVID. Like yeah. I, most other cities, revenues are up and up and up. Even in that market, you can still succeed because the quality of your competition in Houston is still pretty trash. Mm. Most people who've gotten into, into Airbnbs in Houston are because there's this bundle of influencers and sale, like re real estate agents that are like, we're gonna make fast money putting Airbnb hosts in, in, in buildings. And they've got relationships with certain buildings and they're flooding one building with like 60 hosts. Wow. Right? So if you're gonna get started in Houston, you do not get started where somebody puts you. You mm. don't go, hey, can someone help me find an Airbnb? And then some person on, on, in a Facebook group's like, I got you, I'll send you a DM. Yeah. That's the person you run from. Wow. Because they're going to put you in the same trash place as 60 other hosts. And now there's going to be 110 listings in this like, yeah. very small radius on a map. And now you're going to compete on price, right? And even if your listing looks better than everybody else's, just that general area is going to be overrun with problems. The building's going to have a ton of maintenance issues. Now you also have to deal with everybody else's Airbnb guests. Yeah. And now your guest could give you a negative review because the person next door had a rowdy ass guest and like, I can't sleep here because there's always this BS. Yeah. So if you start in Houston, you find your own deals with your own landlords, buildings that don't let anybody else Airbnb, but they'll let you, mm. right? And you'll be just fine. But well, you also have to have a good design and good cost, cost, cost control. Um, there's one thing that most people don't do is they don't hire their own housekeepers. Mm. They'll pay a third-party housekeeping company. They'll pay $55 or $60 for a studio apartment to get cleaned. But if you pay people by the hour, you can get them for $15 an hour or less, which means your housekeeping cost is like 25 bucks instead of 55 bucks. Yeah. And if you do 10 or 11 reservations a month because you're churning a bunch of small reservations, you've just saved 400 or 500 bucks compared to your competitor next to you. Yes. And $500 in savings and housekeeping is directly back in your pocket. Yes. And so that's why some Airbnb hosts are like, no, we cool. We're fine. And other people are selling their furniture, mm. you know, right now because they listen to some half of a guru who sold them an apartment. Wow. Man, you, you are giving a lot of, lot of game right, right now. So like for those, like what makes an Airbnb like somebody that wants to pick them? Is it the kitchen? Is it the amenities? Is it the design? Is it location? Like why, what makes an Airbnb hot? Well, all of those will have a factor depending on the customer, right? Mm -hmm. So all these like types of like questions can always circle back to who are we selling? Gotcha. Right. Yeah. Right. Who are we selling? So I do believe in a way off topic, but on topic that the last frontier for competitive advantage is underserviced amenities. Okay. Right. So mm -hmm. imagine you have a house. There aren't really any houses with gyms. Facts. Right. But mm -hmm. there are toggles for, I want a house and I want a gym on Airbnb. If you can be one of the few that like crosses like a few things that nobody else does, that's what will make you competitive because now law of large numbers with the amount of traffic on Airbnb, if you're one of only a few houses that has gym equipment, there will be a group of people that are like, I need my leg day yeah. while I'm traveling. Yeah. Right. And they'll book with you because the necessity is, is I don't want to have to find some gym two five miles away to get my leg day in. 
I, I'd rather just like appreciate the squat rack that's in the garage, Thanks. right? So that is an underserviced amenity. Hot tubs are still an underserviced amenity. Being pet friendly is largely underserviced. Um, and then there's, you know, just other random stuff that you could do. Like in some cities, a washer and dryer in the place is actually hard to find. Like Philadelphia or New York, there's not enough square footage for a washer and dryer. Mm. So there are underserviced amenities anywhere you go. So if you have something no one else has, you tend to do good. Now, in a city like Dallas, where everything's, there's enough listings and enough good competitors that you now have to think a little bit more elegantly. To be successful on Airbnb, you might need to niche down more, like hyper-service one type of customer, like we talked about traveling mm -hmm. medical professionals or people who are coming in for sports games or people who are coming to a very specific building, right? Um, you hyper-service a niche and you're the best fit for that niche and that will get shared even off platform. People like this Airbnb is like my favorite in the city. Mm. Like people who work together, like whenever I come to Dallas, it's the one I stay at, check it out. You can also do themes, um, mm. but uh, I was actually coaching one of my students and he was talking about doing a theme. And I'm like, how much is that gonna cost you? He's like, I'm probably gonna spend about $50,000 on this theme. Wow. I'm like, okay, so how much would it cost you just to put regular furniture in there? He's like, probably like 12. Okay, so I'm like, so now the question is how much money <laughs> would you project to make with your house if you put twelve or 15000 in furniture? How much money do you project to make if you put 50000 in? Can you even tell what this is going to make? And he didn't know enough about the space to know that a theme would make really significantly more money. Yeah. And we're in business, so we're in the business of ROI. What's that return on investment? If I'm going to throw $70,000 at a house, it needs to make three times as much than if I was going to throw 25000 at a house for me to be happy with that ROI. Right? I'm not going to throw extra money in. So... Themes are a way to break through the competitive market and capture your own customer, but you really need to be careful because if you just put a bunch of money into a theme that's not right for the city, like, oh, well, I wanted to do a Marvel theme. Well, mm. you can do a Marvel theme in plenty of places and it'll work because Marvel's <laughs> super popular. Yeah. But if you do like a Willy Wonka theme, like if you're not doing Willy Wonka like in Hershey, Pennsylvania, yeah. where people love chocolate, then doesn't like, make sense. why though? Yeah. yeah. So you have to be careful with themes, but it is a way to make more money. So competitive amenities, um, reviews, consistently high reviews will always bump you on Airbnb. Your performance okay. will be good. Um, themes where they apply can increase your revenue per dollar invested on design, but otherwise good design is probably a really important thing. So paint the walls, right? Mm -hmm. Paint the walls, unique color, do some stenciling, buy some outlandish artwork, you know, something there's pops okay. because when you're on Airbnb search feed, there's always going to be listings to the left and the map to the right. And all the listings will have one little photo. Mm -hmm. And if all those photos look the same, but then your photo's got like a different vibe to it, people will, it's contrast, right? People, their eye gets drawn to the contrast and they're like, wait, why is this one photo like red and black where the rest of them were like blue and brown, right? They, then mm -hmm. they click on your listing. Yeah. Getting clicks on Airbnb generates more views because Airbnb's algorithm is called an interest algorithm. So you really just want to get clicked on, even if you don't get booked. If you wow. get a lot of clicks, Airbnb starts to rocket you up in the search. So having a cool design typically leads to better photos that pop off your competitors and lead to an SEO performance. And then the last thing, <laughs> what makes an Airbnb good is pricing strategy. Okay. A lot of people just set prices for the weekdays and weekends and it's the same all year. And it doesn't matter if their calendar's full or if their calendar's like booked up a lot and understanding how to change prices when um, is, is one of the things that maybe 6% of people actually even research. Um, they'll plug into Wheelhouse or, or Price Labs now, and Price Labs and Wheelhouse will do that for them. 
but it's still super inefficient if you don't know why they change prices because you still need, anytime you use a pricing software, you should be tweaking it to best suit your strategy. Yeah. Um, so it's like, it's like using a gun and never taking training in a way. Basically. Right? Yeah. yeah. So. Nah, it's beautiful. Like, so what, what are some of the profit margins that people are expecting to make? Because it's like, you know, they're, they're making this investment. It's like how much cash flow can they really make if they do it well? And then, like, also I want to know if they do go to an unsaturated place like the Midwest, you know, what is the opportunity there that people could make if they do it correctly? Sure. Um, so margins. Let me try to give a couple examples. I have a friend, Paul and Megan. They're here like in Oak Cliff, West Dallas, okay. where a lot of properties are popping up. Uh, my buddy Sean Ray specializes in finding properties that'll do good on Airbnb. And um, there's a little over. You got his number because he could. I need his yeah. number. <laughs> well, he's, he's he's actually got a he's got a YouTube channel and everything. Okay, so, I'll, I'll talk yeah. to him. Don't worry. Yeah, Sean Ray's cool. And so there's about a dozen properties that have been put up in okay. West Dallas over here, and one of them is called Queen's Landing. If you, if you Google search Queens Landing Airbnb Dallas, it'll pop up on Google, right? wow. which is cool. And you can see by Megan's choice of design style, like she's got Fendi wallpaper and she's got a whole, the whole back wall behind the TV is all floral, like green and like flowers, like fake flowers, but the mm. whole wall. She's got LED lights that say like, kiss my Dallas or something like mm. that, like really cool stuff. Um, the property is like just popping, right? Now they bought that property um, and I, I can't say I know what they put down on it, but the pro property is probably $400,000 or less. Okay. Um, so if they did an investment loan, they put in 60 and probably renovations and furnishings, they might've put in another 70, right? Okay. So I'd say at the worst, they put in 130 on that house, okay. right? Um, at the worst, but that property is making like $1,200 a night. They're going to be doing 25,000 a month, wow. like on the regular and their operating costs will be their mortgage and cost of housekeeping and stuff. Their cost of housekeeping right now is probably $1,200, $1,300 a month, okay. maybe, maybe $1,500 a month. And then they'll have like utilities, supplies, and stuff like that. Uh, so let's put in another $2,000. So they've got $3,500 a month in hard costs on their $25,000 a month revenue. They have a co-host, which I'm trying to get them out, like where they in-house everything, but they're shaving 20% to somebody else. Okay. So somebody else is making five grand a month just to be nice to people. Wow. Right? That's, yeah. that's a, that's so, a business. <laughs> so, but, and that's why like we need to treat this as a business because yeah. they'd be making, they'd be making an extra 4,000 a month if they in-housed it all and just paid one person as an assistant to deal with guests from here or there. And they picked up some more properties. They could pay their own manager. Like I have Haley and now Haley has managers under her. Mm. They're, they're going to grow and they're going to fix that. But so now including their co-hosting, take the 5,000 away for co-hosting, take 2000 away for utilities and stuff. Um, housekeeping 1300, 1500. So now they're at 16.5 and minus their mortgage and whatnot. Maybe th they're probably making 13, 14,000 a month is what they're yeah. taking home on that property. Yeah. Owning it. Yeah. Which was expensive and using a co-host. They're still making 14,000 a month after shipping all that cost away. Yeah. Now, if you did an arbitrage on the same house, right? That $400,000 a month house, four bedroom, five bedroom, your rent is probably going to be 4,000 a month, maybe okay. 4,200, something like that. You still have the same cost structure, $1,500 in housekeeping. But since you're arbitrage, you like, you're running it yourself, utilities and whatnot, your cost will probably be about $10,000 a month. Now you didn't pay a co-host five thousand to run it for you, so it's not automated. But you, your still costs are still nearly ten thousand because you've got to pay the rent. Mm -hmm. So your carrying costs are higher. But to get in, you maybe gave them, you know, with four thousand dollars a month, you maybe gave them ten thousand dollars in rents and security deposit, and then you spent the forty thousand dollars it cost to furnish the place. 
So you're in for fifty thousand mm-hmm. dollars, right? Instead mm-hmm. of one hundred thirty, and you're still making fifteen thousand a month. Yeah, on that same house. So yeah. that's one example. Studio apartments here downtown Dallas. Uh, your rents are probably sixteen hundred to eighteen hundred for a studio. Things will make four thousand dollars a month. Your after all your costs and rents and stuff like that, you're probably making eighteen hundred dollars a month profit on a studio. Uh, but you can get into that studio for less than six thousand dollars total. Mm-hmm. Get done with it. Yeah. Um, now, if you're in the Midwest, the rents are like eleven hundred bucks. Wow. Right. A four bedroom house in Birmingham, Alabama, was eighteen hundred dollars for the four bedroom house, and they're making ten thousand, eleven thousand dollars a month um, in revenue. So now your carrying costs are your eighteen hundred dollars a month plus your probably your six hundred dollar utility bill because big houses cost a lot of money to do AC and stuff. You're still going to make six thousand dollars a month off of an eighteen hundred dollar a month rental. Gotcha. Right in that yeah. in that case, and you're going to spend some money on furniture, but it doesn't have to be extravagant because it's Birmingham, Alabama. <laughs> Respectfully, you, you could <laughs> you could Facebook Marketplace the furniture, yeah. and you still be competitive, mm. right? It's not about people in Birmingham, Alabama. It's no knock against them, because yeah. the people who travel to Birmingham don't have expectations of finding a W. That's fact, right? That's fact. The Ritz Carlton isn't in Birmingham just banging out like high end reservations, so you're the bar to be the top of the market is lower. Because nobody has come in to be the luxury competitor. So you don't have to go luxury. You can Facebook marketplace some good old school furniture. And it could cost you for that four bedroom house $7,000 to furnish. Wow. Right? Something like that. So now you're in for $12,000. And now that $12,000 investment is making you $6,000 a month. Right? Yeah. No, it sounds, it sounds good to me. Like, um, like, I know you teach a lot of people. You coach a lot of people. Mm-hmm. What, were, uh, what would you say are the three major or you know, most common mistakes that you, your students make? Um, and then what are the three um, things that they do well that, you know, launch them in their Airbnb career? So mis- mistakes that my students would make. Yes. Right. Before they were my student. Yes. Because God forbid. That's why I, mean. I let anybody 100%. make any mistakes. hundred percent. Right? Like, yeah, exactly. Right? <laughs> I'm like a, I'm like a Russian ballet instructor. I'm like, just <laughs> not doing that. Um, they would be willing to pay landlords more money than the regular rent. Mm. A lot of people are so eager to get a deal that they don't negotiate on the deal. They just take what's given to them. Mm. So one of the things I have to untrain is that mindset of like, oh, I want something special from the landlord. So I need to give them extra cheddar, like a revenue share. I'm like, that no. You're going to ask for 8% off the market rent and you're going to ask for two months of rent for free on the front end. You're not giving them extra. That's one thing that they can't fathom until they go through the whole process <laughs> yeah. of training. And I'll make my guys like practice the script, like role play the script out. Like they're, like they're selling a prospect, like boiler room style. Mm. We will practice that. Yeah. Um, so that's one. Two is that they try to go luxury right away. And luxury is where you find the sharpest competition, right? You find the best of the best, yeah. right? People who like have professional designers, yep. people who've been in hospitality for decades, people with bottomless buckets of cash in their pocket. <laughs> And if you go luxury, the smallest mistake will set off the, the entitled luxury market where they, I want Fendi this, I want opulence. And if you, if you don't come from a luxury background, like if, you're, if your daddy isn't driving a Rolls Royce, how are you going to know what luxury is? Yeah. Right? right. So I say anybody who wants to get in the game to make money to change their life, they should stay away from luxury at the beginning because it's not in their blood yet. Right. Makes sense. Um, like that's why white collar folks service white collar folk in a way. It's really it's just really messy. That's why people have country clubs. Yeah. I know very few people who've done great with luxury on their first. But Megan, she's been this high end makeup artist for like Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders. She like she goes to, to the to the Super Bowl and do the makeup for all the cheerleaders at wow. the Super Bowl. Yeah. Like she's been gigged for some big stuff. So her circle of people like even though 
even though she doesn't come from an eight-figure family, she's been servicing those people for long enough to know exactly what luxury for them looks like. So her pro first property, she brought the heat because she was in that world. So yeah, if anybody is picking up their first property and they've been on Broadway for a decade or they've worked at Neiman Marcus for a decade or whatever, mm -hmm. if they've serviced the luxury community for a long time, maybe we can talk about doing luxury as their first property. But if you're trying to learn how to do hospitality and learn how to do luxury at the same time, don't learn both, gotcha. right? So that's the second mistake that people tend to make is that they try to do a property that is too classy too fast and they don't know the mechanics of the hospitality industry and luxury properties cost more money to run, right? The rents are higher, the cost of furniture is higher. If you have to give a guest a refund, that nightly rate's higher, right? You're gonna lose more money. Mm. Um, and those are the big two. I don't know if there's really a legitimate third mistake. Is it mental block? Is it, you know, doubt, fear, anything no. like that? I think everybody goes through yeah. that, right? So how did you get over it, just out of curiosity? I was homeless. Mm. I had no choice, right? Mm. Um, the, you know that book, Think and Grow Rich? Of course. Yeah, so apparently I found out that they took away the word vibration from the book when they edited that book. That's the secret word of the book that they always talk about, wow. but they edited it out. I don't know if that's true, but I saw mm. a TikTok. <laughs> but what I learned from that book, what I took away is if you're going, you do or you die, right? That's human nature. We do or we die. And we've evolved by doing and not dying. We mm. are a survival animal. Yeah. So if you want to do something, boat to the island of whatever you're trying to do and burn every boat behind you. Wow. Right? Take away all of your options and there you, you get there. Right? You are like, you jump off the cliff and build the plane on the way down. Yeah. Right? You will either build the plane or you will splat on the floor. It's the same kind of mechanism. Mm -hmm. So when I was homeless, I was like stealing bagels from Randall's to live. Man. Living out of a van. It was pretty shitty. Four months. Um, but I, I was reading How to Win Friends and Influence People at a yeah. Starbucks. Yeah. I read a lot of other books, but that book and The Leadership Pipeline were wow. two key books for me when I was homeless. And one of the chapters from the, uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People was a girl who was trying to get a job. She's like, I'm willing to relocate, willing to relocate, sending all these like applications in. Nobody called her back, but she did one. She's like, I've moved to your city and I'm available. Mm. They called her, even though she wasn't in the city yet. So she came in for the interview, got the job, and then moved. Yeah. But she acted as if she was already there. Already there, yeah. So I did the same thing with the Corpus Christi Color Times newspaper. I'm like, hey, I just moved to Corpus Christi. I'm available to pick up your contract. And they called me four months later. They're like, hey, you still available? Wow. I'm like, yeah, I'll come down and see you. I got the contract while I was living homeless in Houston. Wow. Yeah, so that's how that one happened. And so I had, there, there basically there was two monsters that I was fighting against, right? The fear and the doubt or the, the need to survive, yeah. right? And so my need to survive was greater than my doubt, mm. you know? So I didn't have any options. And that's what a lot of business owners, they don't become business owners in some sexy, fantastic way where they write this business plan and everybody's like clapping when they read the business yeah, yeah, plan. Yeah, like, yeah. oh, you're gonna be such a great business owner. Here's some funding. Like, let me get, write you a check. And, and it's all glorious and nothing wrong ever happens. That's not how business works. It's clumsy. Mm. It's like the fight scene from The Last Duel. Um, I don't know if you've seen it. I haven't seen it. All right, well, Matt, I will go see it. Matt Damon fights the guy who plays Kylo Ren in Star Wars. Okay. Um, and I don't, he's a newer actor and I should know his name but they're, they're jousting and then they're in the mud and they're fighting and almost every other fight scene you see in any old school movies are glorious. The sword swings are so beautiful yeah. and the, the, the lighting is perfect and cinematography is great. This fight is clumsy. These guys are, it's like they're drunk in the mud trying to like, just trying to survive, mm. right? Mm. And that's really what being a business owner is, is you end up in some arena that you don't know where you are because every business is new to the business owner when you're your first time business owner. So you are, essentially drunk in the mud wrestling an animal you don't understand. Wow. And you fight 
to survive, gasping for air for months until your bank account's no longer paycheck to paycheck. Yeah. And you finally get like a little bit of room to breathe. And you're like, hey, I did it. Yeah. And you wake up on the other end of business. Owner. Yeah. So at what age were you homeless? Because I know how old you are now, but mm. like just to put it in perspective yeah, for the 60, audience. Yeah, 61. Uh, who would have thought? Coffee, man. <laughs> stop, man. Stop. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Um, so I'm 36, but um, I was homeless when I was 23. Wow. So it just in 13 years, you know, you got over 100 doors. You know, you're, you're killing it. You know, did you expect that in Thanks. 13 years? Like just like what it, what has happened in your life? No. Um, and before I went homeless, right? When I was 16 years old, I remember my, one of my very good friends at the time, his name was Paul Watson. His dad was an accountant. Mm. And I remember going to their house. It was like this new suburb cookie cutter home. Home must've been worth like at least like maybe 130,000, right? But in that, like in our little town, 130 mm. is probably a lot. So I remember um, went to his house, we hung out, maybe we played video games or Magic the Gathering. We both played Magic the Gathering, the card game. Mm. And his dad was a, a college wrestler before he, he like wrestled with me and he actually got me pretty good. Um, and I was just thinking, man, I wish I could be like Paul's dad when I, when I grow up. And I asked Paul, like, how much does your dad make? He's like, probably like 70,000. I'm like, whoa, right? Yeah. At 16, I'm like, I hope that I make 50,000 a year before I die. Yeah. Was my 16 year old goal. Wow. Um, but then uh, I drew, as soon as high school, and I had like a 2.1 GPA in high school, so mm -hmm. I couldn't really get into college yet. Didn't take the ACT or SAT yet. So I went to a factory and I worked like 70, 80 hour weeks in a factory and I made my 50,000, yeah. but I was working overtime. So my, I was like, I don't understand anything. Um, I didn't think I had a goal after mm. that, right? Um, I started making six figures in sales, selling newspaper subscriptions and stuff. And I was like, this is super cool. Um, everything was moving faster than I could fathom it. So going from being 18 to working in a factory, then going to music school, but dropping out of music school because mm -hmm. I got the sales job, then making 100,000 and something dollars in sales, then getting to sales management, failing so hard as a sales manager mm. because that's where the leadership pipeline really taught me something was just because you're, if you are a savant at a topic, you're probably gonna be the worst trainer. Because mm -hmm. if you're naturally gifted, how do you tell somebody who's a dummy how to do it, right? It's really tough. And I was a sales, I was gifted in sales, but I sucked at sales management, sales training. But that's, I ultimately went homeless over some drama on that. And so everything was just moving faster than I could ever really keep up with mentally, I think. And so I'd never made new goals. I was wow. just like, I'm just gonna do the most. Most yeah. I can, try harder, try harder. And um, so when I was homeless, I was like, I don't know. I was considering going back to college. Like, yeah. like I was just like, I don't know. It's just remarkable just how you, you scale, you know, like, and, and with, to me in a short window, because like, like you said, you came from homeless and you started and then now you in, how many different cities you're in with, with you nine, know? 10, 10. <laughs> exactly. And you're looking to spread to, to international as yep. well. Yep. Um, so I'm just curious on how, like the scaling, when you realize like, okay, I'm turning this into a business, you know, what was the, the, I guess, the light bulb that clicked in the head, like besides the after the Super Bowl moment, that you was like, you know what, I need to build my team. I need to make this automated. Um, the moment, I'm going to have to give you a two-part answer because I feel compelled to. The moment that I decided to start to scale or build a team, mm -hmm. I was about 30-ish doors in Houston. Okay. And I was starting to hate customers. Wow. Because I was burning out. Right. That's a lot of doors. So. Yeah. yeah. I had people bugging me at 1 a.m. every fucking night. I couldn't get any sleep. Jeez. Right. And I'm trying to run two companies. I'm trying to run that newspaper consultancy. And I had, I had salespeople going out there and they get up at seven, eight in the morning and are trying to get up there and make their big commissions. And that company was still like wrenching a lot of money. Mm -hmm. And then there's the Airbnbs 
So I'm in multiple cities for my newspaper business and I've got 30 doors in Houston <laughs> and the Houston doors are keeping me up at night, but my company needs me up early and I just didn't have enough sleep. I mean, I probably threw some, some parties at your Houston doors, honestly. <laughs> well, there was the first party that I had, somebody crammed like 55 people into a studio at my Sky House. Property. Oh my God! Yeah, not the sky. The sky house in Houston. The very first sky house in Houston, the one that was off of Main Street before they built the second one next to it. I yeah, know they exactly crammed fifty-five doors, <laughs> fifty-five people in there. Um, it was bad. Um, I'm sorry. That's man. when I learned what twenty grand was because there's like these little bottles of twenty grand on the ground. They're like the half Hennessy <laughs> drink. I was like, these guys, and the whole floor was sticky. It was so bad. <laughs> I was. It was sad times. Um, yeah, I actually I got a little bit butthurt about it. Yeah. Um, I just felt I felt violated actually. I, I believe. Party. Yeah. I wasn't prepared. I felt violated. But I've I've learned everything the hard way in this yeah. business, and then of course it's turned into my YouTube stuff. The burnout was when I started to finally automate and hire people because I just it was out of sheer need. Mm. But if you think about the theme here, my starting my first business was out of need, mm. right? Um, me getting ten extra doors was was one of the very few moments I've made a decision based on excitement for an opportunity. I wanted a curiosity. I wanted to try it. Wow. Um, but then the next thing, which was automating, hiring extra people, was out of need. Most of the like bubble ups in my life, whether they're professionally or personal, was that metaphor of ending up in an arena that you don't understand wrestling with an animal for your life that you don't understand, right? You fight your way through life. And if you want to be successful, you put yourself in do or die situations. Mm. You put yourself in a small room with a very deadly creature, mm. right? And you fight that thing to the death and you become better for it. You know, you, you might come out with a little bit of trauma on the back end, right? <laughs> like, yeah. But that's capitalism, right? Mm -hmm. To be rich and have trauma. Mm -hmm. um, but, you will get through it because you're you're utilizing the strongest part of the human, which is its will to survive. Gotcha. That's why we're here yeah. compared to every other animal on the planet. Our will to survive and our adaptability trumps no other. So yeah, we need to put ourselves in more dangerous situations if you want to be successful. Why do you think people don't? Uh, like the, the fear of loss, mm -hmm. right? People don't believe in themselves because we're not raised in a world where every other day there's a lion that comes into our cave, mm -hmm. right? We used to live in a world where survival daily was a thing, where we had that little win every day, where we had to go find food because we haven't eaten for three days, or a lion comes into camp and we have to ward off the lion or some other warring tribe. 20-something thousand years ago, we had plenty of like little pings every single day where our human like genome was fighting for survival, and we were proving to ourselves that we survived. Mm. People were way more fearless 20,000 years ago, I'm sure. Now, yeah. like this is this is comfortable yeah we live very comfortable lives and we've lost that killer instinct so reawakening that ancient version of ourselves in our dna is probably like what puts us like anybody who does that has the edge i agree 100 percent what you're saying so just like what's what's next for you you know you you got you got you know over 100 doors you know like what's what's next for you uh professionally and what's next for you personally um i'm trying to mix both actually on okay. a new project uh, I bought a school bus, which I mentioned, right? Yes. I'm gonna, I'm ripping out the school bus, gutting it and turning it into a schoolie. Um, my YouTube channel will have all the video content of the schoolie that I'm making. So mm -hmm. it'll service my YouTube world. Um, that schoolie will become an Airbnb. So I'll learn right. how to use non-traditional properties in the Airbnb space. Um, but I'll also take that schoolie and I'm gonna go road trip and go hit a bunch of like music festivals and go, like, go see the redwood trees and go into the mountains and stuff. So it'll be my RV yeah. where I can go do what I want to because I do landscape photography and other stuff like that. And I love music. 
obviously dropped out of music school. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> it's going to it's going to service my personal life, service my YouTube channel, but then allow me to start testing schoolies in the Airbnb space. Wow. Yeah, that sounds that sounds fun. You say you also uh, looking in places in Mexico and yeah. uh, Colombia. Yeah. So I've uh, been eyeballing international expansion, Mexico City and Medellin, Colombia. Mm. I've got students in both cities. I think I'm a little behind the ball for Mexico City, but I think Colombia is still right on time. If I start picking up properties in Colombia, I think it's early enough. Mm. And why Colombia? What's going on down there? Um, well, both of those are easy enough from the United States to travel. Okay. Uh, property values are still very low. They are heavy on international tourism. Mm. Um, Medellin, Colombia is the second largest density of expats in the world behind Chiang Mai. Wow. Right. So Chiang Mai, Thailand and Medellin, Colombia are the two largest expat cities. Okay. So it's easiest to pull the international market there. And so we're really banking on the international influence to create like a modernization of the city, increase gotcha. in values. That makes sense. Um, increase evaluations and stuff. Like think of like a place like Belgium, right? Yeah. How did Belgium become so expensive? Mm -hmm. Or Brussels or wherever. How did these places become so expensive? Luxembourg. They were just little farm towns at one point until everybody in Europe wanted to go somewhere, right? And now all of a sudden this little city, Berlin, I mean, that place was trash, yeah. right? <laughs> um, all of a sudden these places are like some of the most expensive places, most high, like Prague, like the property values are insane because everybody decided they wanted to go. So my eyeball on the short-term rental market, there's two things at play here. Where does the world want to go? Mm. Um, and how is the work remote nomad life taking the long-term rental population like and shifting them to medium short-term rental population? How is that shift also going to affect where people are going to be? Yeah. So looking at expat-friendly cities already, Medellin, Colombia just kind of makes sense. And yeah. five years from now, 10 years from now, there'll be different cities that'll be right on time. The next one might be one in Brazil. Yeah. Maybe foreign policy changes and Venezuela all of a sudden will have its doors open and there's going to be a, a change in government and everybody will want to put their money in Venezuela or something gotcha. like that, you know? Yeah. Um, so you just got to kind of keep your eye on what's going on. But Medellin is right on time. How do, how do you, like... Five, 10 years from now, you know, you got you got the Airbnb space, you got the well, the short-term rental space, you got the VRBO, you got peer space, you got things like that. Mm -hmm. And with, with the hotel industry, like how do you see both of those industry moving in the next five to 10 years? Well, hotels are constantly fighting against short-term rentals like tooth and nail, yeah. right? And that's why you see the regulations you see because yeah. hotels, they don't have an advantage against mm -hmm. uh, Airbnb host except for um, their cost efficiencies, right? Mm -hmm. Housekeepers come in, they can clean 14 hotel rooms in a day. I can't get a housekeeper to clean 14 apartments in a day. It's impossible. Mm -hmm. So hotels are more cost efficient with how they run. They've got systems. They want to prevent hosts from getting big enough to develop systems. Got you. Because homes are better than a hotel. Apartments are better than a hotel because apartments have full-sized kitchens, full-sized fridges, washers yeah. and dryers in the unit. Hotels are never going to put that stuff in there. Thanks. And they're afraid, right? So this battle between hotels and the Airbnb short-term rental community is going to continue for five or 10 years. Cities are going to get bought out by hotels and some are going to have stupid regulations because of greed. Some are going to kick back and say, Hey, we need the tourism and hotels are failing us. We're going to, we're going to be friendly with Airbnbs. We're going to see more polarization in the, um, the space, the regulatory space. We're going to see more polarization where we're like, we're friendly or we're not. Yeah. That's good. The, that'll mold over the next five years. I do think. 
peer space is a fun one because peer space isn't an accommodation. People don't spend the night. They rent for an hour, two or three, like at two 30 here. So in about a, about an hour, somebody's going to come in here for a photo shoot. Right? Wow. That's right. Up. And then after that, I think I got another four hour booking. Like this is actually starting to roll in peer space, which is yeah. cool. Now people aren't spending the night, so it doesn't violate some of the least language. There are some least languages that you could argue that you can't peer space because there's like collecting money for use of your space, mm -hmm. right? There are leases that have that language in there, but um, we will see some leases that start to be more like explicit about peer space itself because back in 2014, 15, there wasn't really any language to stop an Airbnb house from Airbnb yeah. if you were an LLC. Because mm. being an LLC would bypass the subletting clause like I talked about with the occupant stacking. Yeah. But there was no thing on the lease that says you could not advertise your space online or collect money. So in the next five years, we'll see peer space related lease language modify. Okay. Because bad stuff will happen with peer space, maybe. Um, maybe, like for example, it's probably already happens. But let's say you've got an apartment complex like this. And some guy shoots a porno, which hasn't happened to my knowledge in my place, thank God. But, <laughs> thank but, God. But, but imagine somebody comes in to shoot a porno and yeah. they bring in some of the most crazy unsavory people because they do this big budget multi-day porno shoot yeah. and scares the trash out of the neighbors, yeah. right? The neighbors are going to be an uproar that there was like, like unsavory people or something. And that might be what they say. And thus that pushback will lead to like legislative changes if peer space ends up not being able to control that kind of thing, right? That's yeah. just if the neighbors don't like it. Okay. Um, that's the kind of stuff we could see with peer space. Um, peer space is still very small compared to where it could grow. Right. Yeah. Um, they're trying to be an air, like the Airbnb of hourly rentals. Gotcha. Um, same thing like Turo. Like we haven't discussed Turo, but Turo, I'm not in it yet, but I'm about to get into it. Okay. One of my good buddies has a few on Turo now. He lives in the building. Um, and he's doing really well. Wow. So the deregulated peer to peer market's going to continue to grow and people are going to become more gig minded. And as people draw more focus to that, um, obviously there'll be more traffic. Yeah. Uh, right now, if you do have a peer space, you should be marketing it many places where the difference is with Airbnb. If you're in an urban area like this, you put a listing up and you have it only on Airbnb, you'll be fine. Mm. Peer space, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not covering my, my costs for this penthouse on yeah. peer space. Yeah. I'm not profiting off of it. Um, but that was never the intent. I was just wanting no, to test no, it. No, 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 yeah. no, no. I think that's uh I, I think that's a, what I believe as well as far as like where the space is going where the, where the landscape is heading. So for those who are you know still kind of just like thinking about it, wondering if they should get it just because they see all the noise out there, they see the oversaturation, they hear the cost of it, you know, they they hear like you know my back against the wall, like that that fear component. How? What would you tell that person that makes them like, all right, you need to make the decision, you know, <clears throat> today to really start, you know, going and making um, decisions and, and get into the Airbnb space? Um, the people who tend to have that concern and fear mm -hmm. tend to be more intelligent people, mm -hmm. right? Um, they see more moving pieces. But when you know more, you know more of the risk and you become more overwhelmed. That's a common thing. Right? Yeah. Some of the smartest people I know are the people who never take action because they're too smart for their own good. Yes. Right. So if somebody's in this bucket, like if you're listening to this and you're like, that's me, I know I'm smart. I know I can do things. I just know how it can go wrong because I've seen it. I've, I've seen the data or, I've, you know, I've, I've been I'm cautious enough to know um, that if you're the person who knows how gravity works. So you have a legitimate fear of falling. Right. Yeah. Then you need to make a, like an agreement with yourself. Right. I will learn enough about this space 
to be able to look at someone else's Airbnb listing and to be able to accurately negatively critique the space and say this listing would do better if it changed this, this, and this, mm. right? So when you go do your market research, if you can go look at someone else's listing and say, okay, they're making 130 a night, but they're only making 130 a night because this is wrong, the photo angles are bad, the lighting's bad, the color scheme's off, whatever, whatever, whatever. If you can go look at a listing and go, this should change this, this, and this way, the moment that you can look at your competition and find out who who's worse than you mm. is the moment that you can find where to enter a market wow. and you can no longer, you should no longer be afraid. So you need to make an agreement with yourself to know enough to know when your competition is bad. And you like anybody should write this down, like in their own diary, like I will start my first Airbnb when I can identify bad competition. Mm. Cause here's what you do with it. You start doing your market research and you start, I'll go, you like, I teach a bunch of market research on my YouTube channel. Right? Yes, so you, you go, do. You yes, go you through, do. You go through everything on my YouTube channel about market research, and then you additionally go and go, well, Dallas is so saturated. I don't, I don't know if I can really identify the right property size. Well, then you go, what, let's say arbitrarily, let's just try to look up studios where, let's see if we can find bad competition in the studio market. So you start looking up studios that are here near downtown, and you go find out how much they make, right? Your goal is to pay, say, $1,600 or $1,800 a month in rent and then have your cost structure be a total of $2,600 a month or something and then make $4,000 in revenue. That's what you want to do to be profitable. Yeah. So now you're looking for properties that's, that have bookings but are worse than you would do, mm. right? Yeah. So yeah. you go find a listing. Like, their calendar's filling up. You can actually see their calendars on their profile. There's, like, this little left and right scroll thing on the main splash page of a listing. Now. It's just, yeah, just go on Airbnb app. You'll see it. Yep. Yeah, you go to Airbnb, <laughs> click on a listing, and then scroll down past the photos and past the amenities, and there will be a calendar left-right scroll wheel, and you can actually see the booked updates. Yep. So go find a studio that has booked updates. Go check what their prices are. Start to go, okay, their weekends are 150. Their weekdays are 110. They're getting maybe 50% occupancy at full price. So you take, take total that math up and then do a like 30% off and add another 40% occupancy at 30% off. And then mm. that's what you would extrapolate their monthly revenue to be. Gotcha. But then once you see, okay, this person's making 3,400 a month, like in this example, let's race through the numbers. Then you go scroll up and go, well, this listing hasn't filled out all of its text boxes. Mm. They've got vertical photos in their photo reel. Their, their first photo is kind of trash. Their yeah. lighting is janky. Their camera angles are like this. They don't have a photo of their coffee station in mm. their photo reel. Um, they've got, the, they when they took the photo of the kitchen, the kitchen wasn't set with the pots and pans on top. Mm. You can't see the plates, cups, bowls, all the stuff. And anybody who knows enough about Airbnb to see like, oh, this person's made, made a run of mistakes on their listing. Then you go, I will beat this listing and they're making 3,400. So that becomes your low watermark. There you go. If I get into Airbnb and compete with this guy, I will beat him. Mm. Right? Yeah. And that's when that, that scared person, the smart scared person knows how far they will fall. They will fall as low as 3,400 a month because the competition that they can beat, that's where they're making their money. And then they go look, okay, so they keep going up. Maybe they'll find a listing that makes four grand a month that, that is trash compared to what they would do. Now that person could confidently go into the same market and go, I can make 4,000 a month because I found somebody worse than me. Yeah. Right. And that's, that's what that person should do if yeah. they're looking to enter into Airbnb. Yeah. So market research, competitive analysis, that's something where it's like, you got to have that down. That could be a, your bread and butter. So you can really alleviate that fear that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Cause if you have all that, that information, those numbers and you know, that those calculations now it's a, it's an easier decision to really start yeah. moving forward. The moment that you know enough to know who you can beat. Mm. Like if you, if you think about it in competitive sports, there are, there are like in like in jujitsu, for example, they talk about the, like the levels of con like of skill. Yeah. Um, 
there, there comes a point where you can see somebody roll for a couple of minutes and you know if you can beat them or not. Right. And in other competitive sports, you see somebody's jump shot, you know, like, Oh yeah. Will they have, will they have shoot? Right. Yeah. (laughs) Like, so like when you know enough about your sport that you can see somebody do just a little bit of ball handling and know where they're at and you can really gauge your competition. That's the moment that you can get into any market and just play against the people you can beat. Mm. Like that's the same with poker. That's what they tell you. You want to win in poker, play against worst players. That's it. Yeah. Right. So that's, that's where you want to get in this game. If you're concerned. Um, there's still enough room for error because it's still a young enough world that you could be more optimistic and brash and just get into the market and bump around and learn. Mm-hmm. And you won't go out of business, right? As long as you respond to the signals that the world gives you, be like, hey, you need to fix this, fix that, fix that. You don't just make a listing and then stop learning. Yeah. Those are the people that'll go out of business. You make a listing and make some mistakes along the way. Sure, you scrape your knees a little bit, but that's maybe necessary to your growth. Facts, yeah. facts, facts, facts. Well, Sean, I think this was, uh, this was beautiful. I I appreciate uh, all the information and and the gems that you shared. You know, like, I don't know how many people have told you this, but, you know, I'm here to give you your flowers. Like, you working and you, um, you know, grinding it where you are today is inspiring to me. You know, so I, I, as a creator as well, I know you have your own YouTube channel and and I know it's not easy. So, like, for you to, to really educate and give back, you know, for you to do this interview, you know, it's, um, it, it shows a testament of your character, your heart. And uh, I just want to be the one to let you know, like, you know, we you have done a great work here. And, um, you know, thank you for sharing the information to not only me, but to my audience as well. Yeah, it's my pleasure. I'm yeah, happy sure. to spit my opinions <laughs> at you guys. So thank you. So for roommates family, make sure you all thank Sean, follow him on YouTube, Airbnb automated or Sean rack. Rock kitchen. That was close. I was getting there. I was close. I was close. So make sure y'all follow Sean. Chris, the star of the show here. I am with. Sean Rakijic. And we'll see y'all next week.